Tonight in uh, beautiful day, beautiful weather, it's, it, it was nice to, to show up to work this morning and it wasn't 90 degrees already getting out of the car and uh, it's, it, it's a gorgeous day today, it's a great night to be here with you. Um, it's a joy to be up here and if you don't know me, my name is Jared and I'm on staff here at Matthias. Uh, we're doing something different tonight. We're going to take a short break, uh, just a brief pause from Hebrews uh, for one week to uh, not go, go along a different message. We're still on the same message of Christ, but, but we're going to go about it in a different way. So tonight, um, we're going to do something with, with a very famous passage of Scripture. And when I think about the Scriptures, I think about um, a puzzle. I think about what the Scriptures are and, 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 how, and how it relates to even how a puzzle works. So in a puzzle, you've got these pieces. You've got hundreds or, or thousands of puzzle pieces that are uniquely and individually cut that, that fit together to create a big picture, uh, to create a picture that's on the box. I tried starting a puzzle this, this past Christmas and it's still sitting on the same table downstairs that I left it. Uh, one piece, I'm convinced, is missing, but, but if it doesn't go together, it's frustrating. Um, but in, in attempts to make it go together, when you don't look at the picture on the box, often what we do is, is we take good pieces of the puzzle. We take uh, pieces that, that are a part of the puzzle, and we can cram them together in ways that, that they don't fit. Even with good intentions to do something, uh, to, to make a picture stand out and to see where this is going. But, but tonight what we're going to do is we're going to look at one of the, one of the most amazing pieces of, of the puzzle of, of Scripture. And, and we're going to look at um, not just what's being said, but we're going to really consider the big picture, the picture on the box. Um, what, what's God's overall intention in this passage? And and we'll get to the passage in, in a second, but, but there's some things I want to propose about um, what we're going to learn tonight. And, and part of it's about salvation. And the, the question that, I, that, that I'm going to address tonight is, is not so much what, um, just what is salvation by itself, but, but what is it and what's the purpose in the life of, of a believer of Jesus after you're saved? Why do you do what you do? Why, why do we live a life that, that's different? Why are we supposed to? What does it mean? And, and I, I want to propose that, that the life that we're living after being saved by Christ is, is much bigger than just a, a new set of rules to, to live by. Um, and, and so it's going to be fun. It's, we're we're going we're gonna to actually break up and look into the, the first 21 verses of the third chapter of John. So if you have a Bible, turn into it to John 3. We're going to start with uh, verse 1. Now, there's three things that, that are read in here and, 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 and a really famous interaction between Jesus um, of Nazareth and, and Nicodemus, a Pharisee. We're going we're gonna to read this, but we're going to pull three truths out of what Jesus says and, and the answers that he gives to Nicodemus um, that are about the kingdom of God and three absolute truths. And so uh, we're going to start off right now. Read uh, silently with me as I read John 3, uh, 1 through 12. Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, no, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of, of Water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that 
I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So, so it is with everyone who's born of the Spirit. Nicodemus said to him, How can these things be? Jesus answered him, Are you the teacher of Israel, and yet you do not understand these things? Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and bear witness to what we have seen, but you do not receive our testimony. If I've told you earthly things and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? So we're going to stop there and, and consider what's happening first. So, so to start off, think about who um, this, this Nicodemus guy is. And, and while you're thinking about it, the, the first truth, this first absolute truth I'm going to propose to you about what Jesus is saying is that the kingdom makes an absolute demand. So the kingdom of God makes an absolute demand. It's a, it's a very clear, very big demand that, that the kingdom makes. But thinking about Nicodemus, uh, we think about who he is and, and who is this man. What does he represent? Well, he's, in verse 1, we see that he's a Pharisee, a member of the Sanhedrin, the ruling religious party. And in verse 2, we see that he approaches Jesus by night. And, and that's significant in some way to, to know that everybody else almost always approached Jesus in the daytime around a crowd, around a, popu, uh, a populace. And Nicodemus sidesteps that and goes to him by night, possibly ashamed or or even in his intrigue, even not confident because of where he's coming from, because he's supposed to be the guy who knows everything. In verse 2, we also see that Nicodemus, um, he calls him rabbi. And, and I can only figure out that Nicodemus is either genuine about this, and, and he's seen Jesus do some amazing things, and he knows that he knows the scriptures, and so he, he gives him credit and says, Rabbi, we know that you're a teacher come from God. Or he might even be sarcastic. If you think about um, a condescension uh, Way, way of approaching him. He might even be coming up to him and saying, Rabbi, we know that you're a teacher come from God. But, but either way, we know that Nicodemus is not coming to him um, in, in a whole lot of pride. He's not coming to him um, wanting to be seen approaching this man. And in verses 4 and 9 in this first section, we see that, that um, as you start off in verse 4, we have Nicodemus coming to Jesus as somebody who um, has a big ego. He's big in a lot of ways. He's got um, a lot of knowledge. He knows his system. And as he dialogues with Jesus, what happens to him is he progressively gets smaller and smaller and smaller to where he started off as somebody who knew something when he came onto the scene. And then by the time Jesus kind of hijacks the conversation, Nicodemus is, is unsure of, of a lot of things. We don't even see how, how this interaction actually ended because, because we're assuming that Nicodemus left less sure of himself than when he came to Jesus. And even in, in verse 12, Jesus' greatest uh, challenge to Nicodemus, saying, you know, you're the teacher of Israel. If you couldn't, can't understand these, these things in earthly terms, how can you understand heavenly things if I'm telling you this? Jesus almost receives Nicodemus's approaching of him. Nicodemus is coming to Jesus, wanting to, to hear about magic tricks and signs and wonders. And, and Jesus, you notice Nicodemus doesn't even ask Jesus a question. He kind of makes an accusation. But, but then Jesus, uh, his answer, his retort is really um, a statement. Jesus knows the, the, the issues of his heart that he really needs to have exposed. And so is, and just think about this. Isn't that the same with us as, as we approach Christ, as we come to him? And thinking that our world is, is set, thinking that our system is secure, thinking that, that, that we know our stuff. But, but in the end, the, these interactions that we have with, with the Christ mess us up. And they turn us into people who um, know less and less about, about where I'm coming from. I, I'm knowing less and less about my foundation, but I'm knowing, 
uh, that, that something is, is important about this Christ, about this man who claims to be the Messiah. Um, looking on in the verses 3 and 5, getting away from Nicodemus, Jesus says that the goal of this demand is to see and enter into the kingdom of God. Now, I've, I've read these verses and I've gone through these verses my entire Christian walk. And, and up until a, month, uh, a few months ago, never um, quite caught the fact that Jesus doesn't say, um, truly, truly, I say to you, unless you're born again, you can't be saved. He, he, he actually could say a lot of things in this, in this sentence, but what he says is, truly, truly, I say to you, unless you're born again, you can't see the kingdom of God. And he says a few verses later, you can't, in verse 5, you can't enter into the kingdom of God. He's talking about the kingdom. Now, when Jesus says these truly statements, we know that he's going to say something important. All throughout the Gospels, Matthew and Mark and Luke uh, as well, there, there are a lot of truly statements that Jesus says about himself. The Greek word is, is, is amen, oddly enough. I mean, it's, it, and it means sincere, uh, surely, sincerely, um, verily, uh, confidently. Um, anytime he says this, he's saying pay attention this is this is really important i don't think jesus uh, ever said truly truly i say to you we should stop and rest and, and hang out because i'm i'm pretty tired he never says things like that he he always drops these life-altering statements after he says this and and he says this truly truly connection saying repeating the word uh, only in the gospel of john and he says it 25 times so the weight that's even, that's even produced in this gospel is highlighted by that. But, but Jesus is talking about the kingdom of God. And we, we have to ask ourselves, what is the kingdom of God? In other gospels, uh, Matthew is all about the kingdom. It's, it's, it's used synonymously with, with the term kingdom of heaven, or, or what we think of as heaven. And, and so, even just going to the basic definitions, a kingdom is an area, it's a place, it's a realm that's ruled by a king. Seems kind of like Captain Obvious, but it's, we, we need to break this down to see what, what's really going on here. And, and so th- this kingdom, a kingdom, includes a rule. It includes um, a way of life, a law, a standard um, that, that reflects the will of a king, that reflects the will of the authority that, that, that's ruling it. You see this even evidence in, in times now. I don't know how, how many of you are watching uh, TV, but, but my wife and I are watching uh, CNN over the past couple nights with with our hearts breaking over this crisis, this famine drought that's going on in Somalia, where 29,000 children under the age of five have died in the past 90 days because they don't have food. And 600,000 people are on the brink of death, depending on what happens with, with relief aid and workers and things like that. Well, the surface issue in, in Somalia is, yes, it's food and it's provision, but they haven't had a ruling authority in place for, for 21 years. There's been nobody to guide this country. There's been nobody to guide this place. And as a result, it's been a lawless land. Jesus, going back to talking about his own kingdom, in John 18, he says, um, when he's talking with Pilate, he says, my kingdom is not of this world. He's acknowledging that, that he is a king. He has a kingdom, but it's, it, it's somewhere, but it's not here yet. And in, in, in Matthew 6, 9, and 10, Jesus even teaches us to pray in the Lord's Prayer, to pray this. He says, pray then like this, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Have you ever thought about the words that, that are in that prayer, what Jesus, what the king teaches his people to pray? He's teaching them to pray uh, for the kingdom of God, for, for God's rule, God's way of life, for, for, for the way it would be and it will be when all things are made right in Christ. All things are filled with, with God. He's praying that those things would come to us. 
King Jesus, bring your kingdom here to our hearts. Bring it to this place. And this is the place that we look forward to. Not, not just a distant, disconnected place, but the, the scope of the biblical story explains that, that heaven and earth will come together in the end. So God is going to bring his kingdom to this place. Now, one more point here. In, in verses 5 through 8, Jesus um, goes into some pretty deep statements. He's saying that we must be born again uh, by, the, by the water and by the Spirit. By water and by the Holy Spirit. Now, you have to ask yourself, what does this mean? We've, uh, we've used these phrases, especially born again, so often in the, in the Christian world that we can say them without even knowing what we're saying sometimes. And what do we mean when we say born again? Well, all of us are born into a family line. We're all born into uh, Adam's line. The first man uh, it, it be, began what became mankind. And so all of us born into mankind are born into uh, Adam's sin. Man, uh, the first man's sin, like some uh, genetic or biological, I don't even know how mysteriously how it happens, but because the first one sinned, all have sinned. And so we're born into this line that is of sin. Um, Paul says it like this in Romans 5. He says, Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For, for as by the one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience the many will be made righteous. And so he's talking about this transaction, this switch that takes place. So that those who are born into sin, born into the, the family of sin, will be born again into a new line, into a new family of righteous blood, of Christ. And in, in the, the water and spirit reference, it's funny because I thought this was actually a, a, a reference to baptism at first. I thought it was kind of give me the age-old question. Okay, so do you dunk them or do you sprinkle? Or, you know, what, what's, the, what's he saying here? He's, he's referring actually back to something much deeper than, than New Testament baptism. He's referring back to uh, some new covenant promises. And we've been going over the new covenant. And in Jeremiah 31, even last week, we, we were reading as as uh, quoted in Hebrews 8, that, that there was an old covenant, but a new covenant was being promised for the people of Israel, that, that a new promise would, would come to pass. And, and in Ezekiel th- uh, 36, um, it says this, it, it, it's a reiteration, it says, I, I will take you from the nations and gather you from all the countries and bring you into the land. I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean from all your uncleanliness, and, and from all your idols I will cleanse you. I will give you a new heart, and I will put a new spirit uh, within you. I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you, and I will cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. You shall dwell in the land that I gave to your fathers, and you shall be my people, and I will be your son. So Jesus back here in these verses in John is, in the first couple of verses, is saying in order to experience this, this kingdom, you have to be born into this new covenant, this new covenant promise that's, that's been revealed and, and, the, and as the story progresses in John, that will be fulfilled in Christ. Thinking about the kingdom reminds me about what happens in a song. Are any of you guys musicians or play an instrument or sing in the shower? I don't know. I mean, is there anything that you, that you do that's, that's close to this? Well, when you think about a song, I talked to Brandon about this a couple days ago. One of his perspective on this. And, and I asked him, I said, what is it like to, to produce a perfect song, to have it execute and go well. And, and, and what we figured out in this conversation is that there's so many ingredients that go into 
uh, a good song. It's, you know, there's, there's, there's the notes that have to be played. There's musicians that are playing it. There's, there's, there's external forces that you can't even control that often mess it up. But, but and he even walked away a few times and came back trying to give an explanation, trying to give a word that described it. And, and after such time, he came back and he said, you know what? Uh, there are no words to explain it. All is the way it should be. All is right with the world. And, and it, that's just a glimpse of what we're looking forward to in this kingdom. This place where, where all will be right with the world once and for all. It's not hard to look around and see that it's, things are not the way they're supposed to be right now. And so we await that day. And Jesus is, is talking about that place, that kingdom. And my question for you is, have you forgotten how big the demand is for, for this kingdom? We've been talking a lot uh, in the past few months about the office of Christ and what he did. But, but have you forgotten, even, even since last week, have you forgotten that, that it, by nothing that you can do, by nothing that any one of us are, are able to do, are we able to, to, to even see the kingdom of God, let alone be a part of it? And, and also, are you, like Nicodemus, are you, um, are you still big in your own eyes? Are you still coming to, to, to Christ and, and interacting in, in your relationship with God thinking that you're standing on something that you have to offer? Or are you still being humbled on a regular basis? Well, we're going to move on into the next, the next few verses here, uh, into the next um, five verses, John three thirteen through 18. And so Jesus says this, he keeps this going. He says, no one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. So we... We've read first that the kingdom makes an absolute uh, demand. And, and the second thing that we pull away from this is that the kingdom demands an absolute answer. And, and so Jesus starts off right away by identifying himself in verse 13 as the answer. He's saying no one, no one has, has, uh, has descended um, here except for he who's ascended from heaven. Jesus is saying, I'm the only one come from the Father who, who has the ability to do this. In verse 14, he says that he would have to be lifted up. He said the Son of Man would have to be lifted up. And, and he's probably refer- referring back to something in Numbers 21 that happened. I don't like the story because I don't like any element that's in- involved in the story that he's referring to. But in Numbers 21, the Israelites um, in the wilderness were, were punished by God because of their unfaithfulness. And, and when I say punishment, I mean extreme punishment. They've walked away from him. And so he sent down fiery serpents, fiery snakes uh, to devour them. I like nothing about that scenario because I'm not, a, I'm not a friend of snakes and I don't like them being lit on fire coming after me either. So, I'm, so I, my predicament would be pretty bad in that situation. But th- though God is executing judgment in that, in that scene, in that episode of the story, he does something really amazing. He tells Moses, he says, go make a bronze serpent and lift it up on a pole. All of my people who look upon this serpent will be spared. And so the Israelites would receive mercy simply by 
trusting God's promise, but by, by turning back to him. And in these verses, Jesus is saying that, that the Son of Man would have to be lifted up, referring to being lifted up on the cross. But, but it's also possibly a play on words because we know that, that one day in the kingdom, we look forward to the day when, when the king will finally be lifted up in glory uh, for good reasons and, and not for bad, for good and not for evil. So moving on in verse 15 and 16, we see that um, God showed his love by giving up his only son. I wonder if, if John, thinking back on the, on, on the human writer that, that was divinely inspired by the power of the Holy Spirit to write this book, I wonder if John knew what he was doing when he wrote this verse, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son. I wonder if he knew what would come from that. To him, he may have just been writing a letter, just an account. But consider the weight of, of what, for, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son, consider the weight of that verse upon, upon Christianity. So we see, we see that Jesus, God's only son, becomes the only source of hope. In, in human terms, this is, this is bad enough today to consider that, that losing your son would be horrific and horrible. Uh, any parent out there today in this room can, can attest to that. But, but if you step back and, and put yourself back into the world of where they're at and, and, and the culture of, of, of the, these people at this time, the, the, the idea of a retirement plan, I think, was different. Okay, um, the idea of, of what lifelong success uh, was, w- was, was different, and it ended up differently being measured. And so, um, less, less in terms of, of wealth that I have now, my, my assurance that I would have, and the, the standard of, of, of measuring my success in my life, would be passed on through my son, through my children. My legacy was, was everything. And, and though that, that is a big deal now, that it, it was so much, so much more of, a, of an upfront truth in these days. And so if you think about this statement in verse 16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever would believe in him would not perish but would have eternal life. John is saying, through the words of Jesus, Jesus is, is saying that God essentially has put all of his chips on the table. This problem of sin that's been plaguing mankind for far too long must be done away with. And, and, and this problem demands the only answer that would truly take care of it, which was everything to God. To, to, to sit in that original audience and to read this, um, or to be Nicodemus and hear Jesus say that, that God gave his only son, w- would be a tremendous statement. Would be a tremendous statement. Because essentially, if, if God's only son, if that plan, if Jesus never worked as the plan, if it didn't work out, then what else would God have? That, that was the most valuable thing that God could put forth to fight the problem of sin. So, though we always say here at Matthias that Jesus was always a part of the plan, he wasn't an afterthought, we, we know that God had to have known from the beginning that it would work, and Jesus is saying that here. So, we know that, that God loved, and so God gave. God's love did not stay word, but, but it became deed. It became action. It became real. It became something that changed lives. And, and, and God gave willingly, God gave his son willingly, and Jesus himself offered himself willingly. He says this in, in his own words in John 10. He says, For this reason the Father has, uh, loves me, because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have the authority to lay it down, and I have the authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my Father. Jesus is saying, 
The Father loves me because I am being willingly obedient to Him. I'm doing this for the will of the Father. And what an amazing truth that, that by God, God didn't scrap uh, humanity once again. He didn't, he didn't tell um, uh, two or three men and, and their, their wives to build an ark and, and then wipe the earth out and, and, and then start over. He, he, he remedied the problem. He didn't junk his creation. He, he, he began the remedy of creation through Christ. The last thing we see in this section here in verses 17 and, and 18 uh, we see that whoever has faith in Jesus receives eternal life instead of death. Now, these verses say that everyone's guilty until proven innocent. This was way before Casey Anthony, way, way before social media and OJ and all this stuff came into play. But, I mean, in our society now, though we say you're innocent until proven guilty, it's, it's, it's quite the opposite. Often you're convicted in, in, in the eyes of public court before you're, before you're found innocent. But in these verses, Jesus is saying that he didn't come to condemn the world because the world already condemned itself. There's nothing unfair about what Jesus came to do because the world had already walked away from him. The only way to escape condemnation, much like the, the lifting up idea that, that he mentioned earlier, was um, Jesus was saying that, that in order to escape condemnation, you would have to believe in King Jesus. Again, he, he's bringing the, the wide scope of the problem, the wide scope of the demand of the kingdom, into a narrow answer, a narrow solution that could only be Jesus. In this word in verse 17, uh, for salvation, that, that, the word, that the world might be saved through him is, is sozo. And, and yes, it means saved, so I'm not like just teaching a word that you already see a, the, the wording in there, but, but it's bigger than that. It's, it's bigger than just being saved from a fire. It's, it's, it also means uh, to be healed, to be made whole, to be made right. So, so it's not just being delivered from uh, something by itself, but, it, but it's that, that I'm delivered and also filled and, and made right and healed once and for all. And so Jesus is, is, is proclaiming in himself that he's, he's replacing this present reality of brokenness with, um, with a kingdom reality of wholeness. That he's inaugurated his kingdom. He's the king, and once his kingdom comes all will be made right, and it's by him that that happens. Paul even worded it this way in Colossians 1. He said, He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom, in, whom, in Christ, we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Nothing is worthy of being a part of the answer except for King Jesus. Nothing could, uh, nothing could deliver us from this domain of darkness except for King Jesus. Now, consider all the ways that we... So we see that Jesus is the answer here, but, but how many other answers do we try to create? How, how many ways do we try to, to add to the answer or, or, or replace the answer or take away from the answer of Christ? There's a lot of problems going on in the world right now, and it's, it's easy to think that if the U.S. balanced their budget, um, if, if, if other countries could do the same, and, and if we all didn't end up broke one day, that that's the answer. Um, it, or, or if we elected the right president, or if, or if somebody else had the right people in power, that would be the right answer. Or, or even a philosophical or, a, or a, like a human progressive sense, like, like, one, like mankind will get there. We'll, we'll be the answer. We'll get ourselves there. And, and we've seen time and time again that, that none of these things can be the answer except for Christ. So what is it for you? And, and we've, we've been visiting this a lot in, in Hebrews lately. Just what is the, the, the answer um, that, that you 
tend, tend, tend to replace in the new covenant with the most. I mean, if I said, all will be right with the world when blank, what besides Jesus is fighting for that spot? And so we're going to move on. And, but it's funny to think about this, this kingdom. So um, we'll read this first and then we'll get to that. It's, it's funny. Maybe it's not funny to you. It's funny to me. But John three nineteen through 21, it says this. It says, And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world. And people loved the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his work should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. So we've seen that the, that the kingdom, this kingdom of God, this, this, this destination, this future hope that we have, um, it, it, it makes an absolute demand. And then we also just saw that the kingdom makes, um, it demands an absolute answer. And, and here we're, we're going to see that the kingdom requires an absolute change in us. So absolute demand, absolute answer, absolute change. But here's the thing. Most of the time in our, in our, in our gospel formulas of how we talk about the Christian story, we, we stop after the second point. Um, th- there, there's a need to become righteous. Jesus fills that void. No Jesus. And, and that's good. I'm, I'm not saying that's bad, but, but often we, we take that and we make that the story. So no Jesus. You're on your own from here, but no Jesus. Or what we'll do on the side is, is, is we'll even sidestep Jesus and say, change your life. But, but the reality is, is that none of these things can happen apart from one another. Our answer is, in Christ is the only thing that provides way of, of our change. Now, in, in verse 19 and, and 20, what, what we see right away is, is that apart from God, there is no light. The people love the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. It's, it's not a popular truth to talk about, and everybody's talking about hell right now and whether it exists, and books are written on both sides of the issue. And, but we, we know the Scripture indicts all mankind over and over again by saying that, that the world is in love with darkness. This world, this present world that we're in, is, is in love with everything that has nothing to do with God. And it's easy to, to forget this because there are commendable things that we see in people that we love who don't know Christ. There are echoes of eternity, and then there's, there's hints of... There's hints of a loving creator within all these people. We can see it, but, but, but the true love, the true desires of this world choose everything but Christ. The, the blame for why mankind chooses darkness over sin is um, th- th- this blame, this issue lies within us. The problem um, lies within me outside of Christ. The problem lies within you outside of Christ. God doesn't make us sin. We choose darkness and we choose sin. We will choose darkness every time unless God intervenes. And praise God that he did. Praise God that he does. Which is why he provided the perfect answer, his only son, the the true source of light, the true way of light, who's the only one who's ever lived the only life in true response to God's grace. And in verse 21, we we see this this wonderful miracle. It It says, but whoever so uh, does what is true comes to the light so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. So we see that God is carrying out works of light in us. When you start to understand how all this fits in, you start to realize that, that for, for people like me and you to, to do works of light is a miracle. For God's love to be displayed through us in some way is a miracle. We don't do it because it makes sense. We do it because God stepped in, 
changed the situation, changed our story, and is doing things of light through us. Now, we don't, um, we, we don't do these things. We don't live a life after coming to know Christ for, because it's the right thing to do. We don't live this, this Christian life because it's uh, another set of standards we're placing on ourselves. We're not stepping back into the old covenant to say, Jesus has saved me, that's great, now I'm, I'm going to work on it from here. It, it's not left up to, to us to keep um, a tally system of what we do in terms of right or wrong. We don't do these things for some arbitrary reason that's, that doesn't have a purpose. And the purpose that we see is, is, is the kingdom. Because when the kingdom comes, the citizens of that kingdom will look like that kingdom. So if, if this is my trajectory, if this is my destination, I, when I get to that kingdom, because what God is doing in me and in you is he's molding us into the image of his son so that when we get there, it'll be relief and not doubt. It'll be the, the final answer for all things being made right. And, and he brings us into the, the plan, into the picture to, to, to bring about his kingdom in this place on earth. So why do I not uh, do certain things? Why do I try to do certain things more? Why, why do I reach out and do works of, of mercy and benevolence? Why do I extend a hand to a brother in Christ or a stranger on the street? Why do I do any of these things? And, and I, the answer is not just because God told me so. The, that answer is good enough, but that's, that's not the full answer. The full answer is that God, this is what God is. This is who he is. His kingdom reflects his character, his nature himself, his law, the way that he would have them be. And so we do these things because it's a reflection of where all of this is headed, our future reality. Um, it's, it's funny to always quote Revelation in a sermon that's, that can either be really good or really bad, but it's, it's really good in, in this situation. In Revelation 21, 1 through 4, John in his vision sees this. He says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more, and I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down from the, out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. To start to grasp this kingdom, we, we have to, to disconnect from an understanding that, that death is okay and, and that pain is okay and, and, and children dying in Somalia is okay and, 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 and people that we love that we have to let go of, we have to let go of the idea that that's okay. It's not okay. And, and Jesus, Jesus is the only one who's ever stepped forward to, to solve that problem. He solved it. One day there will be no more death. There will be no more struggle. There will be no more pain, all will be right with the world. And I'm afraid that in my life and in the lives of, of, of my friends around me that so often do I think that my job as a Christian after knowing Christ is to, um, is to sit on my hands and, and, and act like I'm in time out, just trying not to sin. That's what I'm doing for the next 60 years until I die. I'm sitting on my hands in time out trying not to sin. Is, is, that, is that the purpose? No, it's not the purpose. It's not the reason why we're given the Spirit. We're given the Spirit 
to be changed, to, to start to bring, to participate in kingdom work, to bring his kingdom here. And so instead of sitting on our hands, we get up and we're called to go out into the world and, and participate in the restoration of this place. If not for that, then why do we do it? Why don't we just lock ourselves in our houses and sit on our hands until we die and just say, amen, that's good. There's a kingdom purpose to this life that we live, to, to the things that we're doing. An example that, that I think of when thinking about this is, and a lot of people who've, who've been to Ecuador with our church will, 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 will relate to this in some way, and those who are going will think about this, but, but I, I have a cousin, and, and she's going to Kenya in two years. Long-term missions. I mean, long-term missions. So, like, long when you don't know when, when the term stops. Okay, so that's it's long enough. Okay, that's much longer than, than short. But she's going to Kenya. I'll take humor when I can get it. That's fine. She's going to Kenya. Um, I don't know if you've been to Kenya, but, but Kenya is very different than here. Now, the hearts of the people in Kenya are the same. They have the same needs as I do. They have the same desires, basically, as I do. But their lives look very different. There's different money, different cultures, different, different customs, different norms, different standards of, of the way things, of how they are. The, the, the place on, on every visible scope of the eye is very different than this place. Now, my cousin has to prepare to go there. Um, now, the first thing we think about in missions work is, well, I've got to raise a lot of money. Well, the truth is, is if somebody writes her a check for $25,000 today, she's still not ready to go. It's not a matter of, 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 of just having something paid, and, and then that's it. There's no participation. She's, um, she has to change. Though, though the trip could be paid in full, she could have her ticket waiting for her, there, there are things that have to happen in her life. She, she would have to start doing certain things, put, putting on uh, new habits, new, new, new Christ-like attitudes. She would, she would have to start taking away things, dealing with sin in her life, dealing with things that have nothing um, to do with the work she's doing, dealing with the things that have nothing to do with the place where she's going. That's, it's a sacrifice and a struggle to, to change yourself, to take on a new identity, to become different. But, but after all this time, after all this sacrifice, after all this after all these things that she gives up, by the time it's ready to go, she'll be a new person. Essentially, in, in, in many ways, she'll be very different. And, and after all, this, after all this, this trek, after all this work that it's taken to, to get there, when she finally gets there, after years of preparation, years of anticipation, years of hope, years of expectations, years of doubt and uncertainty, but, but, but faith that it's going to work out, after she finally gets there, she'll belong. My question for you is, as we think about this kingdom is, why are you doing what you're doing as a Christian? Is your life reflecting the kingdom of darkness, the domain of darkness that you were bought from? Or, or is it reflecting this, this kingdom of light, this place, this almost unimaginably good place where, where all will be right with the world? Well, God will be with us and, and we'll be his people finally the way we should be and he'll be our God and we'll see it in every way that we can is your life reflecting the old or the new, the dark or the light? It's not just about rules. There's a purpose behind it. It's not just about being 
uh, good people and, and righteous in ourselves. It's, it's about conforming ourselves, our lives, uh, to, to the image of the place that we're going, to the king whose reign we're going to be under totally one day with no more sin, no more struggle. So as concluding, I think about this, we, we don't seek the kingdom because it's the right thing to do. We seek the kingdom because it's the most valuable. Have you ever sacrificed anything for the sake of the kingdom that hasn't been paid back tenfold in some other way? Jesus himself, as he described the kingdom, he, he, he didn't give systematic definitions. He told stories more often than not. And in Matthew 13, he, he tells it like this. He says, again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls, who at finding one pearl of great value went and sold all that he had and bought it. The man had been searching, searching for perhaps a long time. And, and he finally found the one that was valuable. He finally found the one that was worth everything. So for the sake of the value of this one pearl, he said, take it. Take it. It's okay, because this is so unbelievably valuable that this is my treasure. And so my, my encouragement for those of you who don't know Jesus is to know him. Begin this journey. Participate in this, this kingdom life as the kingdom comes. And for those of you who are in Christ, who know him now, rejoice. Because he is the true greatest treasure. Why don't you stand and let me pray and then we'll worship. Father, I thank you for, for your blessings. I thank you for for your truth. And, and Father, I, at this time as we wrap up, I just pray uh, the prayer that you taught us to pray. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come and your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, please. Forgive us our debts as we forgive those who've, who've trespassed against us. And, and deliver us not into temptation, Father, but, but deliver us from the evil one. For thine is the kingdom, yours is the kingdom, and yours is the power, and, and to you, Father, be all glory forever and ever. Amen.